My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jamie Keach, and you are listening to, as per usual, the Resource Insider Podcast. Now, it has been a hectic couple of weeks over here at Resource Insider headquarters. We are putting the final touches on our most recent deal, a really cool Nevada gold play run by a guy named Mike Allen, who I'm super excited to be supporting, who I'm super excited to invest in, and we are getting a ton of interest. It's massively oversubscribed, and I have been running around like crazy putting all the pieces together for myself and for our members. And one of the parts of that, one of the pieces was heading down to Beaver Creek a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago at this point. And for those of you who don't know, Beaver Creek is an awesome conference held in Beaver Creek, Colorado. It's right outside of Denver. It is one of the best mining conferences in the world, in my opinion. And I got to spend time with a lot of different people, everyone from financiers to great companies and CEOs, and also some of my fellow letter writers. Now, that's not something we talk a lot about at Resource Insider, but newsletter writers make up a big part of the mining industry. In an industry that is so heavily populated by micro cap stocks, you know, these things that have less than a $20 million market cap, these are companies that don't get research coverage from traditional banks, from uh, the analysts you see at TD or Canaccord or Haywood or any number of these investment banks. So they are heavily reliant on the boutique letter writing business to get their stories out there. To, so people can learn about companies, so people can learn about opportunities, particularly in the early stages of this game, in exploration, in discovery. And one of the most successful letter writers, one of the most well-known letter writers, is a gentleman named Mickey Fulp, and he is the guest on the podcast today. Now, Mickey has been at this for years. He is one of the few letter writers that started before the mining downturn and has been able to survive and even thrive um, through a very difficult market. And there's a few reasons behind that, I think, and that we get into in this conversation. But what I like about Mickey and one of the reasons I wanted to have him on here is twofold. One, he is a geologist and there are very few letter writers in this space with a technical background. those who listen to this podcast a lot will know I'm an engineer, um, but there's a couple geologists out there that are doing similar sort of work. And, you know, being technically inclined myself, I really, really value that education in someone that is out there evaluating and commenting on mining and exploration companies and trying to help people make good investments. The other thing that is interesting about Mickey is the fact that he has the opposite business model of me. So at Resource Insider, we have paying subscribers that we give information on deals that we're participating in. They get the opportunity to invest alongside me on the same terms at the same rate. We don't take money from companies. We don't take finder's fees, none of that. Mickey works the opposite way. So Mickey works for the companies. He gets paid 
by several sponsor companies uh, that like his work and that believe in his message. And he helps tell their story and comment on the space to thousands or tens of thousands of people every week. He is a prolific writer and commentator and content creator. He is out there everywhere at all the conferences, on YouTube, on you know his blog, and he has made himself into one of the most recognizable uh, and in many ways one of the more respected voices in this space. So Mickey and I, we really get into the weeds on how the letter writing business works. And for anyone out there who is interested in paying for a letter or or subscribing to a free letter, this is a great, great conversation to listen to because it'll give you a better view of how people like me and Mickey make our money and being sure that you are getting your info from the right sources, understanding how people are incentivized and just being able to make better decisions. Uh, Mickey has been in this business for decades now. He's got strong views. He's got very well-researched views. And we talk about what he likes right now in terms of commodities, in terms of, in terms of companies, and all the rest. So without further ado, let me please introduce you to a very interesting conversation with Mr. Mickey Fulp, the letter writer from The Mercenary Geologist. Mickey, welcome to the Resource Insider Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. A busy day, a busy week, uh, as most of them are, Jamie. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, I'm sitting at home here in my office in Vancouver. Uh, where are you right now? I'm sitting in my office in Albuquerque, or south of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I run a small farm here. Uh and I commute to my office every morning, uh, but that commutes is a 10 meter walk from the front door of my house to the front door of my office. And the best thing about that, Jamie, is I get to go home for a hot lunch every day. <laughs> I'm guessing the, uh, the traffic's probably not too bad either. No, traffic is minimal in this, in, in this place, so yeah. So we uh, hatched the scheme of doing a podcast together uh, last week when we met for a drink at the Beaver Creek Pressures Metals Conference. Um, maybe the best place to start our conversation is how was your time at the conference? And maybe for those listening at home who haven't heard of it, could you give us a little 20-second overview of what the, the conference is at Beaver Creek every year? Uh, it's a one-to-one -one conference. It's our arguably the best or certainly one of the best of that venue. Um, lots of companies who uh, are presenting their wares, uh, they solicit meetings with investors and analysts and writers and et al. And we also have the ability to request meetings with companies we're interested in. I'm very selective. Uh, I think I took about 13 <clears throat> official meetings but by the same token, I probably had double, at least double that from informal meetings during the conference. Yeah, we were in the same boat. I think we had 25 and then, you know, we probably did close to 40, I would say, by the end. Um, good. So, you know, we got chatting there about how we see the industry, uh, what's going on in the market, and a lot about your background as a geologist and then come letter writer. 
<clears throat> and what I wanted to talk about today is basically who you are, what you're doing, and then how you're managing your portfolio and how you see things going over the next year or so uh, in the mining capital markets. So if you could give us the 30,000 foot view of who Mickey Fulp is and, and what your career has been, uh, what would that look like? Well, I am the mercenary geologist, but that was a long time coming within a long career. Always interested in the outdoors. I grew up in the Ozarks of Missouri. Uh, I hunted, I fished, I explored. I had a rock collection from age seven. I went to uh, university, uh, uh, oil school, the University of Tulsa as a petroleum engineer. Uh, after two or two and a half years of that, I said, I don't want to sit behind a desk. In those days, it was with a calculator doing reservoir engineering, and I don't want to spend a career on rigs offshore in the North Sea. So I said, I need to find a job where I can be out of doors, and geology was the obvious thing. I, I got a degree in geology that was an oil school. I spent a brief uh, period of time uh, in the petroleum geology end of the business, hanging well logs on the wall and looking at squiggly lines. I decided I wanted to be out of doors once again. So I went to grad school, University of New Mexico, uh, got a master's degree uh, in field geology, did a thesis where I was hired to, uh, well, I sold my claims to the mining company. I uh, uh, my thesis area was hired to drill my thesis. Of course, that went south I, very quickly. Uh, although that project still lives today. Some Aussies are exploring it now in, up above Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, I uh, worked six years for said major mining company, Santa Fe Mining. Uh, I was not so kindly asked to leave every good employee every good scientist will be fired at least once in his career i was fired <laughs> i became a consultant 10 years before my plans in my long-term plans involved that uh, i was a consulting geologist uh, for about 20 years um, started with major mining companies on prospecting consulting agreements by 1992 i was working exclusively for the junior resource sector out of vancouver got my first finder's fee in 1992 uh, in cash and shares turned that into a, a vancouver-based brokerage account will have been a, a first a retail investor and now i would classify myself as a professional investor in the junior resource sector for, what is that, 27 years now. Uh, most of the 90s and 2000s, I was chief geologist in one way, shape, or form with juniors operating mainly in Latin America and conversational in Spanish. Uh, I lived at times in Chile, I lived at times in Peru and Mexico. and. 2007, I had a consulting job to do reconnaissance exploration in the Sierra Madre of 
northern Mexico. If you've ever been there, you know, it's the world's most difficult terrain, subtropical thorn forest. Uh, I decided I was too old to do that anymore, besides the fact that doing recon exploration of Sierra Madre is nearly impossible. I talked to a couple of people in the business, in the media end of the business, and said, I want to be an analyst uh, in January of 2007 by PDAC, I had my first analyst job, and I started with Jay Taylor, a well-known newsletter writer. I was retained to evaluate his giant portfolio of 80 companies that he covered and whittled them down. I whittled down 30. Uh, uh, after doing that for two or three months, uh, we both realized I... Uh, I was breaking his bank with what he had to pay me and I could make more money doing it on my own. At that time, Jay said, within a year, you'll launch your own newsletter. I said, I don't have the discipline or the uh, wherewithal to write a newsletter. Uh, he told me within a year and 11 months later, I had to admit I launched a newsletter and mercenary geologist <laughs> was born. <laughs> And so that was 2007, 2008? That was 2000. Yeah, the, the newsletter was, was launched, although I refused to call it a newsletter for three or four months. It was officially launched along with the website uh, the last week of April in 2008 because I, I, I had some prescient view of what was coming, and that's the global economic crisis. I wanted to come in at the bottom when um, peers in the newsletter writer business were losing subscribers because they made bad picks and everybody made bad picks during that yeah. time. So I kind of was the new guy on the block. Uh, coincidentally, Brent Cook, uh, who I consider uh, one of the few peers in the newsletter writer space because he's a good geologist, he launched his newsletter at the same week in April of 2008. Um, and it's just gone on from there. It's, uh, it's a wonderful business. I love what I do. Most mornings I wake up very early and I, or let me put it this way. Most evenings I go to bed very late. Uh, I don't need a lot of sleep. I wake up early uh, and the night before I look at the clock and say, okay, how many hours do I have to sleep before I get to get up and go to work again? So. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a lot for us to unpack over the next uh, 45 minutes or so. But I actually want to, you know, take a step back right to the very beginning there and, yep. and sort of ask a question that I'm personally interested in. What was it like uh, growing up in the Ozarks, and would this have been around the, the 60s, 70s? Am I right on that yeah, time frame? Absolutely, yes. Uh, so I'm dating myself, but uh, it was, so I'll, uh, it I'll was say, wonderful. <laughs> the, only, the only thing I know about the Ozarks is, <laughs> the, uh, say. Is, is the Netflix show, The Ozarks, uh, about sort of drug runners and, and, that, and whatnot going on in that part of the world. <laughs> And I, well, <laughs> I hadn't heard much about it before. So what, what was it like growing up there in the 70s? Well, I want to preface my remarks to, uh, to let you know that the show The Ozarks 
is filmed north of Atlanta, Georgia. So ah. it's in the Appalachians, actually. Uh, but uh, it's a wonderful place. Uh, I grew up in a small town. Um, it, I left there as soon as I graduated from high school, never to live there again, but I continue to go back uh, every spring and fall if, if I possibly can. It's God's country for hunting and fishing and out of doors. And, and I love it there, but I don't want to live there because it's a very hot, humid climate. And there's lots of bugs in the summer. Um, I don't know if you know what chiggers are, but anybody that grew up in the southern U.S. will know what I'm talking about. Uh, hot, humid, and steamy, and buggy in the summer. Uh, lots of ice storms in the winter. So I choose to live in a high and dry climate in New Mexico. Uh, but all in all, it's, uh, it's the heartland of America, and the people are uh, somewhat uh, provincial, if you will, but I'm from there, and I speak the lingo, and, uh, and I, it was a wonderful life growing up. And was a lot of that spent outside uh, in, near the lakes in the mountains looking at, uh, I guess, probably starting out nature, you said hunting, but did your interest veer towards geology and sort of the natural history uh, early on, or did you pick that up in university? No, I, that, that came early on. I love the outdoors. I, I spent <laughs> probably uh, all the nights I've, I've slept on this planet uh, uh, a goodly portion. I, I don't really know how many, but a significant number have been sleeping under the stars. I don't really like tents very much, so I tend to sleep on a cot and outside unless it's raining or really buggy. Uh, but always in, enthralled with rocks. Uh, I come from a mining background. My grandfather was a driver in the zinc mines around Aurora, Missouri. A driver meaning the guy who drove the ore carts, the mule uh, drawn ore carts out of the mine. Skipped a generation, but, uh, but I went back to the mines. Explored a lot of the old mines and the chat piles and the sinkholes around where I grew up uh, as a kid. My mom didn't really know what I was doing. She probably would have tried to prohibit it but you know <laughs> you just sneak out on the weekends get on your yeah. bike and ride so is there much mining going on in that part of the world today uh not that particular part of the world that's in southwestern part of the ozarks of missouri but the world's largest lead mines continue to operate in in kind of the core of the ozarks uh in southeast missouri so uh uh, the viburnum trend, the old old lead belt, the new lead belt, i.e. the viburnum trend. Um, there is exploration. There's significant potential uh, around there for not only uh, more lead zinc deposits, but copper cobalt deposits. There's been barite mining. There's been iron mining. There are rare earth deposits. So it's a very well-endowed part of the planet. So, you know, you started your career, uh, you, you mentioned a few things, first with getting a master's and then working at a major and then consulting to the majors and then consulting and running juniors. 
if you're talking to a geologist in their 20s starting out today, how do you feel they should really be focusing their career early on? Should they be getting into the junior space? Uh, should they really be extending their education? Or do you think it's essential that they sort of spend some time with a major or mid-tier company learning best practices or learning how the big boys kind of do it? What, do, what is your view on that? Well, I think you need that big boy sort of uh, corporate experience to start. Uh, if you can work in a producing mine, that's very valuable. But I also think that you need a master's degree in this business to progress to the capital market side or the management side, which everybody naturally seems to evolve to. Uh, whether a, a young uh, geologist or engineer uh, gets that major experience first or uh, goes to graduate school first becomes a matter of not only of choice, but I think the status of the markets because we're a boom yep. and a bust industry. But uh, I think a master's degree for economic geologists, and I will emphasize the word economic geologists, uh, <clears throat> is uh, essential for a really, or not always, but uh, for, uh, but generally essential for a productive career. I would also opine that a PhD uh, uh, generally makes most people overqualified. Now there are some notable exceptions of people with PhDs, but I think the best explorers generally are probably the practical guys that uh, get master's degrees. And then for the upside, eventually, you, you, most people are attracted to the junior mining space because that's uh, where the real opportunity to make real money exists. Uh, I'm going to correct you. One thing you said is I've run juniors. I've never run a junior. I've never been uh, more than a chief geologist. I've uh, always uh, avoided the vice president of exploration status. I have never been an insider of a company and meaning never a director, never an officer, uh, never a reporting shareholder and knock on wood and people can't see what I just did, but I knocked on my hard bald head there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will never be an insider of a company. So I can understand that now in your role as a letter writer, why you'd avoid that and why, you know, you want to be aligned with the people who are reading your work and free to make trades as best suits your portfolio. Why, when you were working with these companies, did you never want to get above the senior geo, the chief geo role into uh, an officer position? Because I'd rather pound on rocks than pound on people. Uh, my, my skills are with rocks and business development and finance. Uh, and it is not, my skills are not managing people. Uh, you know, I have uh, anywhere from three to six people at any given time who work for me at mercenarygeologist.com. But all those people are independent contractors. They have assignments. Uh, uh, they either work, uh, for a piece of the business uh, on a piecemeal basis uh, or some uh, on an hourly basis. But, but I am very uh, much, uh, I need to be a hands-off manager and not manage people. 
And so I, I've tried to find a sweet spot that corresponds with my skill set. Mm-hmm. Did you work with, did you ever work with many VPXs uh, or maybe even technically oriented CEOs that you thought were great technically, but also great from a management perspective? Absolutely. Uh, and that's the people that I refer to as economic geologists, the people that understand business and development and, and finance and marketing uh, and all those sorts of skill sets. Uh, uh, those are the really good technical guys. And I think it goes for engineers too. Geologists and engineers, I mean, we're quite different in the way we approach things. But uh, you know, I actually know a couple of good CEOs who have degrees both in mining engineering and and geology. And man, those people are valuable. Yeah, actually, I've often thought that a lot that like an undergraduate degree in mining engineering gives you such a good foundation. And then to get a master's in geology, economic geology, exploration, really makes you pretty powerful in the space. I mean, the person that comes to mind as the prime example of someone like that is David Lowell uh, behind, I think, you know, 14 discoveries yeah. and Eric Ipo and Peru Copper. He spent his career as a, you know, exploration geologist, but he did start, I believe, with a, an undergrad in mining or geological engineering. And, um, and probably so. I mean, I essentially have a degree in geological engineering because I went to an engineering school and spent uh, two and a half years of college getting the basic engineering sort of uh, background. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, that's similar. So I have an undergrad in engineering and a master's in engineering, and I have regretted ever since that I didn't do my master's in geology. Um, my master's in engineering was essentially the same thing, but in more minutia and even more useless. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, in hindsight, well, if I'd gone back, I would have focused on, on exploration geology. And, you know, I'm a big believer for most people, being 80% of what the way there in a wide variety of skill sets is a lot more valuable than being 100% of the way there in one or two. And Well, I could not agree more. Uh, and I am a journalist as a geologist. Uh, people that know my work know I'm a bit of a talking head about commodities. But, uh, you know, I've, I've explored for just about everything you can explore for on the planet with the exception of diamonds. I've never done diamonds, but uh, you know, I've done everything from gold to silver to copper to the specialty metals, rare earths, coal, water, oil and gas, limestone, sand and gravel, et cetera, et cetera. So I think people uh, that are generalists and tend not to become experts in anything or are, are, can be very valuable to our junior resource sector. Yeah, and I think especially especially in the role that you're filling, uh, the ability to understand a wide variety of topics and commodities and mining methods and translate that from a highly technical discipline to something that you know the intelligent layman can understand and act upon is a very valuable and often... Um, probably an underappreciated skill set. And I'm probably to- toting my own horn here because uh, <laughs> this is basically my job. But uh, no, I think uh, I, you've seen a lot of people, whether they're running companies or they're running successful newsletters or they're working at banks, their big success has been able to communicate these complex ideas to people who don't have the technical or financial backgrounds necessarily. 
Well, I think, uh, and I hope that one of my skill sets is I am able to translate uh, very obscure geological concepts and terminology to lay investors. And we, a big part of my newsletter is trying to educate uh, lay investors so they make better decisions. And, and really the, the, the foundation behind that or the idea behind that is if you can educate people uh, to make better, uh, I should not even say investment, speculative decisions with their money, then they will make more money and they will continue to come back into our market, mm -hmm. which translates to more volume and liquidity in the markets. And we all know that liquidity slash volume in stock markets lead to higher prices. So it becomes a win-win for all parties. So one of the reasons, Mickey, that I was excited to have you on here today is because you're the first other newsletter writer that I've spoken to on here. Um, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the newsletter business. Um, and I wanted to sort of have a discussion with you about your view on the space, uh, what brought you into it specifically from, from you know, you could have been an analyst at a bank or in the back office somewhere grinding away in Excel at a desk, but you took a more public role interacting directly with investors and companies. Let's start with what, why did you choose to get into the newsletter writing space specifically as opposed to being a more traditional analyst role? So the first six months of being an analyst, I wrote strictly cut and dried analyst style reports, uh, setting target prices. Now they were my own target prices and not target prices that were, were influenced by the company I worked for that had skin in the game and wanted this price or that price and that fudge factor or, or the other one, uh, some, some multiple of net asset value. Uh, but I quickly moved to a more newsletter style of writing uh, because <clears throat> I think secretly I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, mm -hmm. And I probably didn't r realize that, but from, you know, I, everybody has mentors and I've written a piece many or probably seven or eight years ago called The Importance of Mentors. And I listed all my mentors and I've had seven. And one of them, the third one, besides my parents, and they were mentors for completely different reasons, uh, was my sixth grade teacher who required us in English to write what they called a theme every and turned in every Monday. And I would procrastinate until Sunday night and my mother would rag on me for hours on Sunday to start writing my theme. But under the gun, I would write. And, uh, and so it probably spawned a, an early love of writing and and as soon as I quit being an analyst and actually started writing a newsletter in a newsletter style, uh, I was a lot more happy when I wrote. Uh, yeah. Writing's hard, though. It's the hardest thing I do. This is the easy part of what I do is sitting and talking off, off stream of <laughs> consciousness or whatever is going on between us here. But, uh, uh, but writing's hard, uh, and it's hard work. But... 
but I really embrace it. Yeah, I mean, that a, a little bit parallels my own sort of journey into that. I kind of figured out I wanted to be a writer in university after being halfway through a technical degree. But I also knew I didn't want to be unemployed or making $20,000 a year for the rest of my life. So I carried on with engineering and, and mining and whatnot. And, you know, it's, I think it's interesting now that almost certainly to be a good writer, I believe, you need to know a lot about other things. Like writing is really a complementary skill set for most people as opposed to a singular skill set in of itself that you can make a living at today. In my view. Well, I, and I think I know that because I know some people, uh, a couple of people who write newsletters that were writers in college. They got degrees yep. in English or literature or communications or, or whatever. Um, I never had that. But those people, they, they'll sit down and write a 10,000 word newsletter every week and I don't know how they do it and they write it once and they don't revise it or they revise it once I try to be a wordsmith and I revise and and so it's a slow laborious process for me so in a way I'm a bit jealous of the people that are actually writers and I'm not absolutely not one of those people well, that actually brings me really well to our my next question, which is in the newsletter space, particularly in the mining newsletter space, you know, what do you think the role is of technical newsletter writers versus non-technical uh, people from a, a marketing or a writing background? You know, of the technical newsletter writers, the ones that I can think of is yourself, Brent Cook, and myself. You guys are geologists. I'm mm -hmm. an engineer. Absolutely. I can't think of anybody else out there. Um, I am personally and quite biasedly of the opinion that mining is a highly technical discipline. And if you don't have a background in it, or at least a very sharp financial background, or you're not an incredibly quick study, you are perhaps getting in over your head when you're, an, you know, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, analyzing a company. What are your thoughts on that? Is, well, you I, might be, you don't piss off any of your friends out there. In the no, and I, I'm going to try to be <laughs> diplomatic uh, here, which I'm not always known to be, but uh, we'll attempt it here. Um, I consider myself to have very few peers in this business of newsletter writing. Uh, certainly, you are as an engineer. Uh, Brent Cook and his partner Joe Mazumdar yep. uh, are geologists and I consider them my closest peers. Uh, in the past there were another a number of other uh, newsletter writers who uh, were geologists. Most of those guys got washed out in the in the six-year bear market from 2012 to well who knows if we're still in it or not. The juniors still are in a bear market. A lot of those people got washed up. Uh, a lot of, uh, so there's very few of us. And I think we have an insight as technical mining, exploration and mining type guys that, that some of the other newsletter writers, and there's some quite good ones, uh, don't really have. I think they can get fooled, you know, that old who's, who song and we won't get fooled again. Uh, <laughs> now I've been fooled plenty of times, but if, it's generally not on the technical end. And and um, 
So I think we have an advantage, but I'm like you, I'm biased, you know, I'm in a, I'm yeah. a geologist. Uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I know enough about mining engineering and metallurgy, uh, probably to be dangerous. Uh, uh, you wouldn't want me to design a metallurgical program, but I can talk the lingo and I know, uh, I think a lot of it is it gives you an, uh, an advantage for fatal flaw analysis. And that's really what right. we're doing as analysts, geologists, engineers, newsletter writers, pundits, whatever we do, uh, you learn, and I've learned this, I, I am a quick read and the older I get, the quicker read I am. Uh, and the ability to find fatal flaws in projects or technical reports or, or feasibility studies or whatever you want to you want to talk about uh, quickly. Uh, the one thing that I uh, notice amongst some people with more financial background, they're better at reading financial statements and balance sheets. Yeah. Picking the fatal flaws out of those things. Uh, but I have a I have a whole uh, uh, cadre of peers who when I need a a balance sheet looked at or uh, or I have questions on a financial statement I have people I can go to can help me out on that stuff but much like you and me I mean I'm sure when you look at a pre-feasibility study uh, you got a check mark and you can red flip flag things without ever even really getting into the to the report itself look at the look at the first 10 pages the abstract yeah or the executive summary and you said this was done right this was done wrong they're fudging this they're fudging that this is real this is questionable and i i mean i even find now if i can sit down and talk with the management or the ceo for 15 minutes i think i could probably eliminate 75 percent of the bad ones with you know right right out of the gate just on the way they talk about things the way they quantify things their the mannerisms you know you kind of get to spot the patterns pretty quickly, I would say, of the people that actually know what they're talking about and are serious of on delivering what you're saying. So yeah, yeah what, and I agree with that. And I, I know every CEO of every company I, I own at this stage. And if I, mm -hmm. I if I speculate in a company, and I do not know the CEO, I will know that CEO quite quite quickly, I will schedule a person-to-person -person meeting. Looking people in the eyes is very important. Uh, and I've got a few tr trick questions up my sleeve that, uh, that will ferret out people that are pretenders from the real, from the very few contenders. You know, I think that's a good point. Uh, you know, I look at my uh, sort of stock chart here and the only companies I've ever gotten really burnt on is when I took recommendations from someone else and didn't know the management team. I've never had a huge loss from people that I know personally and all of my gains are from those people. But I would say every time except for one where someone said, look, this is great. I know them. It's going to be good. I always get screwed over there. I always lose <laughs> at least <laughs> half of my money and I've stopped, I've stopped doing it altogether until I get to know the people. <laughs> Well, so, that point is well taken. I have a question for you, and this is something I try to fight against a lot in my newsletter. And you sort of hinted on it earlier that, you know, you when there's something you don't understand, be it financial statements or some of that more uh, 
technical financial data. You talk to people that are expert in that, that you know that you've built relationships with. I have tried to fight a lot against the guru mentality in the newsletter space. I mean, when you look at mining companies, when you look at big investment firms, it's never one guy that makes all the decisions and knows everything himself that you know mm. calls every investment or every acquisition or what have you. And something I emphasize a lot is you know that I'm not a geologist. I have a good working knowledge of geology. I can you know sort of cheat my way by on it. But whenever I'm looking at an exploration project, I talk to a geologist that is an expert at that deposit type in that location, that part of the world that knows the people involved. I think that this sort of the guru mentality is a big mistake and people out there who are looking for that guru that can say, guys, we're going to find you. Everything is going to be great. Just trust me. I mean, it's only a matter of time till they get fucked really in my, in my view. And how do you manage, uh, you know, filling in the gaps that you don't know about because you're not an expert on every single type of deposit in the world. Who do you talk to or what do you do to sort of boister your knowledge? Are there teams of people you draw on? Yeah, I, you know, I've been in this business for 40 years now and I'm, I have a huge network of contacts. So, uh, you know, if I need a metallurgical engineer, uh, I know the guy that to call you, you actually worked, uh, uh, on a copper leach project. So if I need no some, uh, heap leach copper oxide project, I know the guy to go to heap leach gold. I know the guys to go to, um, uh, mining engineering, uh, you know, I'm tight with a guy, uh, who lived in Chile, Australian guy, I call him up and, uh, and he's a kind of a design construction, mm -hmm. uh, development engineer so so you you learn uh and those become quid pro quo sort of things so uh, you con consult with with people that you respect people that you're friends and and they and they ask you opinions you know i got brokers who ask me opinions they're not my brokers they used to be my brokers but uh they flip me a project and say hey mickey take a look at this tell us what you think uh, and I'm honest and I tell them right up front and I don't like probably 90% of what they send across my desk, but yep. when they send that one at 10, then that gives me an opportunity to likely participate in an early stage opportunity on a project I like. Mm -hmm. So I hope I answered your question there. I think you did. Yeah. And it kind of brings me to what I was thinking next. And I'd like to talk about, you know, I'm viewing this conversation for people listening at home who perhaps don't subscribe to any newsletters or don't follow anything closely about how they can best make a choice to follow the right people, uh, trust the right people, whether it's you, myself, somebody else that is best for their portfolio. So you and I have uh, basically completely opposite business models in so far that my business model is we have subscribers and they pay us a fee and we go out and look for private placement investments that we want to participate mm -hmm. in with, with our subscribers. We never take any money from companies. We don't take finder's fees. We don't do right. any of that. You come the other way. You work closely with companies and you help to tell their story to your audience and communicate it in a way. What's your view on the different ways to do this? And what do you see as the advantages and disadvantages of each? Well, I don't know if there's any real advantages or disadvantages. Uh, 
you know, I run a free subscription service, a sponsor model. I basically don't tell people to buy or sell. I tell them what I'm doing or what I have mm -hmm. done in the market. I let them know if my cost basis uh, for anything I cover. I, I, uh, I'm a shareholder and generally I'm a significant shareholder. So I've got skin in the game and it's, uh, here's my idea. If it meets your speculative goals, do your own research. Don't, yep. here's what I see, but be comfortable with it, with your own discretionary funds. Uh, and that's the way my business model works. But uh, most of the people that are in this business and most of the ones that, that are my peers uh, run subscription models, not too dissimilar from your models. I think it's important. It's important for me that whatever model you run, you've got your own money. You've got your own skin in the game. It's much like I want CEOs and management to own significant stakes in their own companies because then they are motivated to reward not only their shareholders, but themselves too, because they are significant shareholders. So yeah, uh, I don't, I can't say that there's one advantage or disadvantage from one model to the other. It's kind of whatever works for, for whoever your subscription base is. You know, we've got, uh, uh, nearly 7,000 subscribers now. Uh, we've got 52,000 Twitter followers. That's about a, a little bit of an ad for my business. It's free. Uh, mm -hmm. And we've been quite successful, uh, not only in bull markets, but we've been successful in bear markets operating a contrarian philosophy. Therefore, we get in early, we get in when things are unknown, unwanted, unloved, and undervalued. Uh, we have a methodology that, uh, that trading methodology that basically is when it stocks double, you sell half, take your money off the table, preserve your capital, and go find the next one's going to go do the same thing. So you're constantly building a larger equity position, we call it mm -hmm. power to. I, I was taught that by my first broker uh, in, in Vancouver in 1992, that trading methodology, and I've followed it ever since. So is there a stage that you typically tend to look? Are you in exploration primarily or development, pre-discovery, post-discovery? Where do you like to focus? Well, all of the above, uh, you know, I, I'm always into very early stage opportunities, get in, get in early uh, on good ideas and good geopolitical parts of the world with the proper management, proper share structure. Uh, that said, I think really the greatest leverage in this business, uh, from my point of view, are the advanced explorers, the people with discoveries who have drill holes that are splashy and well on their way to uh, getting a resource estimate. So those advanced yep. explorers slash developers are often the, the greatest leverage in this business because you've taken a significant amount of risk away from the company, yet you haven't gotten to the point of, of where the upside kind of goes down. And that really is, is after the resource estimates and when 
companies get into the uh, to the permitting development stages. That yep. that junior uh, performance curve is very well known and publicized by a bunch of newsletter writers and analysts. So you mentioned that you look for good management teams and properly structured companies. You know, assuming there is a strong asset and technically it, it, it checks out. What does it mean to look for, in your opinion, of a good management team in a properly structured company? What are the traits of that that you are going after? So the good management team, I prefer for exploration companies, exploration <clears throat> development companies, I prefer geologists and engineers with technical expertise uh, who have a, a track record in the business and they have been successful with that track record. So, uh, uh, guy, you know, uh, guys that have had two or three or four companies that uh, got rolled back or or reconstituted uh, or went bankrupt. I don't consider those people. I want. They're not venture capitalists or entrepreneurs anymore. And I don't. I don't want to be associated with those sort of people. Uh, but. Yeah, so technical background, skin in the game, meaning that, and one of the questions I always ask is, how many shares do you own and what is your cost basis, your overall cost basis for those shares? So people at startup companies and they reward themselves with five or 10 million shares to start out at 0 .01 <laughs> yeah. at, at a penny or less, uh, those are the ones you want to stay away from. You want to make sure that they put money into their own financings. They continue to participate along with their uh, institutions and retail shareholders and their accredited investors at all. So, uh, Yeah, I did a talk about this uh, early this year where I kind of built a pyramid. I called it the value pyramid. Uh, it probably should be the unvaluable pyramid where I kind of look at how much of the cost base is actually bared by people that are on those later stage financings and, and how important it is for investors to understand that, you know, when the CEO or early investors say they come in and they own 5 million shares, the price of what that they bought it at is the most important thing. If they're buying it at a penny and you're in the, in the IPO stage or later and you're buying it at 25 cents, you know, that they've already made 25 times return on their money. So even if that share price drops down to half or a quarter of what you're buying it at, they're still in a position to make a lot of money. And I think people coming from outside of the sort of junior and the venture space really need to wrap their head around this key point in terms of understanding how well their incentives are aligned with management. Well, your point's very well taken there. And and, you know, the, the real problem with the junior resource sector, uh, and I've spoken about this as have many other people, there are too many companies. Uh, and even at, though we've carved down from something on the order of 1,600 companies in junior space during the boom times, or maybe 1,700, and now we're down perhaps around 1,200, there's probably only... Uh, uh, two, 200 to 300 good projects in the world at any one time. So uh, 
is is this a solvable problem that are 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 lifestyle companies where ceos take take uh big salaries to wet to uh lead their west van lifestyles and they're essentially mining the stock market now by the same token you and i mine the stock market too we're trying to to get in uh low and sell high so uh, mm -hmm. you can argue but but we we're we don't run uh, the so-called lifestyle companies and i think there's too much of that uh in vancouver and 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 toronto do you think that this is a curable problem? I mean, we've had basically a 10-year bloodbath in the mining capital markets, and still the majority of these things have refused to die. Um, you know, from my perspective, it's not. I think that this is a characteristic of a venture industry uh, insofar that there is a tremendous amount of opacity uh, in investments and decision making, and because of that opacity, it's going to attract swindlers that are able to hide in that space. Uh, you know, I think we'll see it. We see it in the weed space. I think we see it in. The, we definitely see it in the yeah, block, blockchain, so Bitcoin in space. Weed space, yeah. And we're going to see it in any of these spaces. I mean, mining is so entrenched, I suppose. And I mean, unlike so many of these other industries, mining just keeps coming back again and again. It's up and down and up and down. Most of these are one-time bubbles. Mining is a recurring bubble. So you get these, these lifelong parasites, I suppose, that yeah. hi, hide in the bottom of the industry and just bide their time until they can you know, get another, uh, another run, make a few hundred thousand or a few million dollars, and then sit back and wait until <laughs> they can do it all again five, six, seven years later. Well, I would agree with you. I think it's incurable. Uh, and part... Uh, or it's, let me put it this way, it's incurable the way that the current uh, securities commissions and the stock exchanges are structured. Um, you know, there's still, uh, I don't know how many, probably seven or 800 zombie miners uh, on the Toronto Venture Exchange and the Canadian Stock Exchange now. Uh, who have net huge amounts of negative working capital, uh, yet they are allowed to continue to exist. So it, it could uh, be improved considerably, I think, if, if the, the powers that be uh, with the Toronto Venture Exchange uh, were willing to get rid of the, of the companies, the bad companies, uh, with negative working capital. They're unwilling to do that because they generate fees. They have a vested interest. TMX Money is a publicly listed company on the Toronto Stock Exchange who derives a significant amount of its revenues from listings of junior companies on the venture exchange. And they don't want to give up those revenues and because mm -hmm. that's uh, makes their bottom line look better on a quarterly basis. So it's a bit of conflict of interest. Uh, you know, I've been very outspoken about the way the, the, the Toronto Venture Exchange is run by a public company who has a vested interest in, in generating revenues from that, from said exchange. Uh, uh, you know, we had a movement of foot in 2015, uh, to get rid of a bunch of these zombie miners 2016 but then the price of gold went up and 
and people kind of forgot about it and went away. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think it is incurable. Uh, I think it could be made better if we had a, an independent stock exchange that was uh, not had a uh, not a, a, a revenue generating entity. Uh, but until that were to come to pass, I don't, you know, uh, and, and, and that's becomes an advertisement for newsletter writers who hopefully uh, can pick through all the chaff and find a few kernels of wheat uh, at the <laughs> proper, proper time to allow us to speculate on futures. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're speculating in futures. It's not a, not a lot different than, than uh, soft commodity futures, corn or wheat or whatever. Uh, uh, we're just speculating that, that we can buy uh, and sell in the future at a higher price than, than we bought at. So on that note, at Resource Insider, we're spending a lot of time right now looking at gold, obviously, but we're also looking really heavily at copper, uranium, and nickel. Um, and gold stocks, as you well know, and anyone following this wells know, well knows, are very easy to find good or at least decent good junior yeah. mining gold companies. Agreed. It's not It's not easy, I have found, to find any good copper, nickel. There's a few uranium out there but like what are you guys looking at these days where are you focusing your portfolio well i'm really looking at all the above except for nickel um and uh, i i can go into the reasons why we're not really looking at nickel but i'd rather uh talk about the positive aspects of what we are looking for which is gold i agree with you it's very easy to find uh good gold companies at specific times, there's, you know, gold runs the Toronto Venture Exchange. And before that, it it ran the uh, Vancouver Stock Exchange. As yep. go golds, goes gold, so goes those exchanges. It's difficult to find good copper companies. Uh, I agree with you. In fact, a little anecdote, you and I first met on a copper exam in Nevada on something I consider to be a, a very prospective copper oxide deposit. Unfortunately, I think it's in a corporate vehicle that, that uh, uh, doesn't really float my boat and, and perhaps never exactly has. We won't, no need to mention that company. Uh, but it's really hard to find good copper projects. But I am probably most bullish on copper in the mid to long term than any other metal uh, for supply demand reasons. Uh, I've gone into that before, probably not necessarily uh, necessary to do that here. Uh, uranium, I've been on the uranium bandwagon for <laughs> a long, long time, many years now. I know it's coming. I can't tell you when. We've positioned uh, ourselves uh, in copper development and mining stories in the U.S., ISR mm -hmm. projects in the U.S. I have long-held positions that are core positions waiting patiently for uranium to make a turn and I trust that whenever that happens, and I have no idea when that's going to be made, uh, that turn in uranium prices 
uh, we're going to make a bundle of money. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. And I mean, we're very much the same. We've got ourselves and our subscribers have big positions in uranium stocks. Uh, of course, gold. I have been looking very hard for a copper sort of pre-discovery post-development asset that is probably out of the money right now, but near to being in the money to buy. I haven't found anything I really like to date, uh, but we've got a few things on our list that we're, we're following pretty closely. Um, you know, before we go, I, I want to chat briefly about what are your views on the market now? You, you sort of joked earlier that hopefully we're at the end of a bear market now coming out of it. It does certainly feel that way from a gold perspective. Uh, I don't like asking people to, you know, name metal prices or anything like that. But what is your feel about where we are heading in this space? Well, we're long overdue for a bull market. Uh, we thought we were coming into one three years ago, and then a significantly rising gold price got knocked down again. This time, it feels different. We 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 established a very strong base at 1,400, 1,430 gold. It looks like we're establishing now uh, a strong base at $1,500 gold. So uh, that commodity looks really good. Uh, copper is, is very beaten down right now, uh, but that has solely to do the entire base metal space, industrial metal space with the Chinese U.S. trade disputes, when that's settled, I think we'll see a very robust copper price. Uh, the market, the junior market, has not participated. We've seen the gold miners go up. They've given back some, some of their market cap. Uh, but it becomes a trickle-down effect. And in, so far, it hasn't trickled down to the juniors. You need only to look at the Toronto Venture Index, which yep. white weed and cryptos is still dominated by gold explorers <laughs> and developers, and it's gone nowhere. You know, it's it's it flirts with six six hundred and it dives right back down. I think it's probably five ninety today. To put that in perspective, in two thousand and seven. The Toronto Venture Index was 3,600, and in 2011, probably the day before PDAC, it hit a high of about 2,400, and here we sit, sit at 600. So it until it trickles down, even to the good set of juniors, and for the most part, it hasn't even gone into those advanced explorer gold developers with really good projects and safe geopolitical jurisdictions with the right yep. management might share structure it has not trickled down but that presents a buying opportunity for us as contrarians good and i want to i want to add a note to that for all um the would-be contrarians out there that are only buying gold stocks now after the price has gone up and completely ignoring copper at the moment. I would just say, have a look, you know, actually have a look at the thing nobody likes right now. Um, Absolutely. It, it's very easy to be a contrarian buying gold when it's up 30% over the last year. <laughs> Try being a contrarian in a down copper market. That's, that's all my, that's my public service announcement uh, right now. Before we go, I want to give you a moment to uh, to talk your book for, for a second, Nikki or Mickey. What um, 
you know, if you, what should someone be looking at out there? If they are looking to position themselves, let's say in a, a pre-production gold company, where should we be looking? Uh, I will ask you, do you want me to name specific companies or just generally uh, uh, a philosophy of how to do this at this stage? Uh, you know what? Why don't we say both? Start with the philosophy, then give us one or two okay. names that excites you. Well, so I think uh, at this stage with gold at 1500, what I've just said, the juniors have not participated in the upside yet. That will trickle down. Now, uh, I will preface my remarks by saying I am assuming gold's going to stick around 1500, but go find good explorers, advanced explorers in the good old US of A that haven't seen this uptick yet and i know uh i've i own shares in a and several of them uh and for the most part they haven't participated uh companies that have a uh, million ounce resources or better with exploration upside and they're trading at or near their 52-week lows those are obvious buys um name a couple of companies in in uh gold space that I have uh, put my hard-earned dollars in and, and are sponsors of my website. Uh, Illegal Royalties is being re-rated right now as a royalty producer. Now we got, we got everybody in there at nine cents and it's gone as high as 47, but now it's had the typical re uh, uh, retracement. It's trading in the low to mid thirties. Uh, and it will be re-rated. It's in the process of being re-rated from a prospect generator to a small royalty company. Look at its peers who have market caps of a hundred million bucks or more and Ely's sitting there with a $30, $30 million market cap at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, another idea, and it's not public yet, but I wrote about it maybe about a month ago, is a company called Real Gold Resources. Uh, it operates in the Kyrgyz Republic. Uh, I've often said I will never put my money in a country that ends in stands. Well, uh, it's no longer a stand because it's been <laughs> rebranded as the Kyrgyz Republic, but it's a very exciting uh, Carlin type gold play, uh, 250 plus kilometers of strike length. Uh, uh, it's, it will be public very soon. Uh, and I have my money into it at, at a lower cost basis than it's probably going to go public at, but uh, immense potential. Uh, we put 11 million bucks of private money in this thing. Uh, and it's a real deal, Carlin, uh, trend that has never been explored. Best drill hole to date, 21 meters of 33 grams per ton gold with rock that I've looked at and that rock could be thrown into the middle of the Getchell pit or a core box at Turquoise Ridge and it would fit right in uh, in North Central Nevada. All right. Um, for those people at home who want to learn more about you, who want to learn more about your work at Mercenary Geologists, where should they look you up? What, how do they learn more? Uh, mercenarygeologist.com is the website, uh, free subscription service. Uh, click on 
the banner right before my mugshot on the homepage. It will lead you to a subscription banner. You got to give us a name and you got to give us a, a, an email address. I don't care. You can fake your name, but you got to give us a, <laughs> a, a real email address and you'll get my stock picks. The advantage, 90% uh, of what I do on the website uh, is free for everybody, but only the stock pits go to subscribers, but the price is right. And finally, at Mercenary Geo is the uh, Twitter feed. We have 52,000 followers, and you're going to get uh, a number of, of tweets every day, and that can go all the way from the fact that my St. Louis Cardinals uh, clinched a playoff spot last night uh, to my latest products, to uh, commodities information. We try to have a lot of fun with our Twitter feed. All right, Mickey, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down today. Hey, thanks a lot, Jamie. And it was my pleasure and best of luck with your newsletter and your, uh, and your private placement service. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.